Well, good evening, folks. Good evening. It's my great privilege and a real pleasure and blessing for me to be able to be with you again this evening. And uh, I want to say to you all, thank you very much for coming. So it's lovely to see you. And as I pointed out, and perhaps some of you are with us last week may remember that I was suggesting that it's very likely that there's a number of you here who have been praying for a good many years, perhaps about unsaved loved ones, maybe uh, a long-term illness that you've had or is in your family, perhaps some other difficulty that seems to have been ongoing for a long time. Now I know that your church, like ours and many others too, have been praying for God the Holy Spirit to come down in revival again on our nation. But I wonder whether you're rather like this prophet Habakkuk, who had a very distinct feeling that God wasn't listening. Nothing's happening seems to be no answer. This prophet Habakkuk was living around about the early 600s BC. And Eliakim became king in Jerusalem and Judah. And his name got changed to Jehoiakim. We won't go into that now. But he had an 11 year reign. And we are told that he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, what he did do was he reversed and undid all the wonderful reforms of the previous King Josiah. And as a result of this, Habakkuk the prophet, he gets into what seems to me, as a result of reading this prophecy of his, seems to me he gets into a, a real state of heart despair. Because every day he has to look around at the circumstances in Jerusalem, further afield in Judea, and as he tells us in chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3, what does he see? He sees the violence that is being, uh, that is going on. He sees the injustice, the wrongdoing, the destruction, the strife, and the conflict. And this breaks his heart. And so he goes to God and begins to cry out to God, Lord God, come, listen to our plea and our need, and please come and do something about this awful situation. As he says, I call for help and cry out. There's violence going on. But, you just don't listen. And you just don't save. And yet, having prayed this prayer, and I get the impression he's prayed it for some little while, God does then at some point come to him and he answers him with what must have been to Habakkuk a shocking revelation. Because God comes to him, and you see it in chapter 1 and verse 6, by saying, well, actually, Habakkuk, I am doing something. I'm doing something pretty tremendous. I'm doing something that's going to be a real shock 
to you. That really, if you didn't hear it from me, you probably would never believe it. But what I am doing is, I am raising up the Babylonians. They were the emerging empire in the northwest. Northeast, sorry. They were in the northwest, they were in the Mediterranean Sea. They were in the northwest. Very right, in the, in the northeast. And they're going to come. I have appointed them. And they're going to come to this land and to this city. And I have appointed them to execute judgment and punishment. You see that in chapter 1 and verse 12. And so then, at the end of verse 1, uh, chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, have a cook decides, having learned this shocking revelation that the Babylonians are going to come and wreak destruction on the city and on the nation. He goes to the ramparts of the city to watch. Watch for the Babylonians coming. But not just to watch, but himself to listen, to hear what else the Lord is going to say to him so that he'll have an answer to this complaint. And so God comes to bring him an answer. And we looked at it to some degree here last week. God is going to come in justified retribution. God is going to come in justified retribution. So going on, following on from what we said last week, going on from verse 6 down to verse 19 in chapter 2, we see here that though God is going to be using the people that are more wicked than the people of Judah and Jerusalem, the Babylonians, he is nevertheless promising that after they have reaped their destruction, God is going to reap a justified retribution on them for their wickedness. But it's going to take time. But it's going to come. The tables are going to be turned. And you can see that in verse 6 right there, where it says that, Will not all of them taunt him, speaking of the Babylonians and their army and, uh, and their people and so on, will they not taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. You see, the Babylonians were going to come and they were going to wreak destruction and they were going to pile up stolen goods. As I explained last week, they would, they would uh, strip the land and the homes of the people and take their goods and their, their animals and their wealth and all the rest of this. You're all going to be done by extortion and cruelty. And there's a, there's a, because there's a question, isn't there? How long is this, how long Lord is going to allow this to go on? But he says, well, it isn't going to go on forever. Because those who have been, those who have been captured and those who have been attacked, etc., the tables are going to turn and they are going to be doing the taunting. And they are going to do, be doing the ridiculing and the scorning in due course. But it'll take time. That's the point, I think, of the question, well, how long? It's not going to happen straight away. And so the Babylonians come, as they did. But then, 
Verse 7 in chapter 2. Takes Habakkuk beyond the invasion and all the destruction and the devastation to begin to look, well, what's going to happen then when this time comes? And God begins to pour out his wrath on the Babylonians. What's it going to look like? And it's it's summarised in these verses for us in five woes. Five woes. Five indications of the way in which God is going to bring punishment on the Babylonians. Not gonna, we're not going to stay with this now, we're just going to get through it very quickly and you can read it in more detail at home on your own if you want to. But the thing to notice about these verses is this, that the Babylonians' destruction is mainly going to come from inside rather than outside. Yes, it is true that in the end the Babylonians were overcome and defeated by the Medes and the Persians at the time of Belshazzar. And you remember those of you who know your Bible, the writing on the wall and so on and so forth. But even before the Medes and the Persians destroyed the Babylonian Empire, it's already got the hand of God's judgment upon it because prior to that it will be crumbling from the inside out. And as you look through these verses, you'll see why. If you take the trouble to read them, you'll find that the nation is going to become bankrupt. It's fine buildings that it built based on slavery and extortion and through the riches that they gain from plundering countries. Those fine buildings have become a testimony to its exploitation and cruelty. They will become fuel for the fire of God's wrath. You can see that in verses 12 and 13. The empire is going to become, uh, going to degenerate morally. See that in verses 15 and 16. And God is going to give them a cup of his wrath and their wanton violence, verse 17, is going to be repaid. It's interesting to notice that in the providence of God, very often powerful empires start to crumble from the inside. It happened to the Romans. If whatever the Roman Empire really started suffering major defeats, it was degenerating within morally. The Roman Empire began as quite a democratic institution, slowly and surely became more and more autocratic and more and more cruel and left more and more corrupt. And the corruption grew from inside. And that's always on a nation, an empire, a government that is always a sign that God's wrath is active upon them when they start the crumble. He, as it says in Romans chapter 1, he gives them over to the wickedness that they start to generate and degenerate into. God's wrath is upon them. 
for their hatred. It isn't that God suddenly acted in wrath on the Babylonians when the Medes and the Persians attacked them. He'd been working to destroy them for a long time before then. And as we see towards the end of chapter 2, as that all begins to come to fruition, as God's wrath begins to take its, its effects towards the end of of the Babylonian Empire, then their boastfulness and their power, verses 18 and 19, and their idols will all be useless to them. They are all proved utterly impotent to help them and to deliver them. And so Habakkuk is given this vision that yes, there are awful times ahead. The Babylonians are coming. They're a wicked people. They're a ruthless people. They're going to cause destruction and devastation and a tremendous amount of suffering upon the nation of Judah and Jerusalem because of their backsliding and their wickedness and their rebellion against God. But, even though that's true, God, as we read at the, uh, at the uh, end of chapter 2, God is in his temple. See that? The Lord is in his holy temple. That's simply telling us that in all this time, the sovereign God is ruling over it all. Nothing is out of hand. We tend to look at Afghanistan, don't we? Tonight, and in these weeks, it may have been a temptation to say, it's all got out of hand. And it looks like that, doesn't it? You see the TV reports and say, it looks as if it's all got out of hand. Not as far as God is concerned. He's in his temple. And notice this. He's not in his temple in Jerusalem because he's sending the Babylonians to destroy the place. And that's what they did. As part of this invasion, eventually they burnt the whole thing down. Robbed it of all its treasures, took them to Babylon and burnt the building down. So here, if you like, for the people of Jerusalem and Judah to see their temple in complete ruins well that's got to be the end of everything no it isn't God is still in his temple the real temple in other words he still sits on the throne of glory and he still reigns in spite of all this destruction and desolation And it is interesting that he points out to Habakkuk, look, the Lord is in his temple. Let the earth be silent. Let the earth be silent before him. What does he he mean by that? Well, I think what he means by this is, let everybody note. Just lift up your eyes. Just open your eyes. Look what's going on. See what God is doing. Take notes. The sovereign God 
is revealing his wrath. The sovereign God is demonstrating that he demands justified retribution. In other words, God is not a nice white-haired benign gentleman who sits up there somewhere just being nice to everybody no matter what. No, no. God is a holy, righteous, pure God who cannot tolerate iniquity, will not look on wrong as we saw in chapter 1 last week. And if that was true for the people of Judah and Jerusalem, and it was true for the nation and the empire of the Babylonians, it's true for all of us. You see, folks, don't be deceived. Don't let anybody deceive you. God cannot be mocked. The world thinks it can mock him. The world thinks it can laugh at God and even laugh at the idea of God. But, God says, a man reaps what he sows. And whoever sows to the flesh to please the flesh, in other words, the people that live just to please themselves and ignore and think they can laugh at God from the flesh they will reap destruction. God has set a day on which he'll judge the world. Not just Judah and Jerusalem and not just the Babylonians, but you and me. A day when we will all appear before the judgment throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he will judge the whole world with justice. All the greatest empire and empire builders the world has ever known, the whole of mankind is to be brought to the judgment throne of him who sits and reigns from heaven. And so you see what God is doing here. He's saying to Habakkuk, look Habakkuk, the business of this world and the business of this universe isn't just all about you. It isn't just all about Jerusalem and Judea. It isn't just all about these Babylonians. It's about the whole of the earth for all of time and eternity. God is getting Habakkuk to lift up his eyes beyond the sin of Judah and the wickedness of the Babylonians and their invasion and to look to the ultimate end to look to the ultimate end. For then it is that God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. But he's saying, look you people of the world. Look what I'm doing to Jerusalem and Judah. Look what I'm doing to the Babylonians and learn the lesson. Be ready for when it's your turn. That's what he's saying. Be ready for when it's your turn. God is a God who demands justified retribution for all our lives. 
And what's the result of this retribution? It is a universal demonstration. It's a universal demonstration. Did you notice that I jumped over the most well-known verse in Habakkuk chapter 2? You may not even have realised it's in Habakkuk chapter 2, but you probably heard this verse, that the earth will be filled. Where am I? Oh, right, here we are. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Have you heard that verse? Of course you have. Yeah, well, many of you have. We sing it sometimes, didn't we? I don't know why I didn't pick this in tonight. We could have sung it as well, couldn't we? You see what's happening here is this. The whole earth is going to know the glory of God, just as the waters cover the sea, which is a lovely little phrase, just as the, the seas fill the oceans, if you like. So all over the world, the knowledge of God's glory is going to be known. But notice this. It's going to be known in his wrath and his judgment. It's going to be known in his wrath and his judgment. The world is going to recognize the glory of God's power, God's authority, God's holiness, God's purity, God's perfection when they see how he judges the wickedness of the world. We think about the end judgment of the world. When we read that kings and princes and generals and the rich and the mighty, they will hide in the caves, they will hide among the rocks, they will call to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? People from all over the world, all states and stages of life, are going to recognize the powerful glory of God when he acts in his judgment and wrath. We tend to look at this verse, chapter 2, verse 14, and think, isn't it a lovely, happy verse? And that's how we sing it. For the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that great? Ah, (laughs) just a minute. The verse is set bang in the middle of this book and it's all about God's judgment and wrath. That's where his glory is going to be seen in his judgment and his wrath. That's as much as Habakkuk could see really at the time because that's God's message to him. But two and a half thousand years, praise God, we can see something else. Because by the goodness and grace and mercy of God, we can see that there's another side to God's demonstration of his great glory. Because we can now look back at the greatest demonstration of God's glory, which will fill the whole of the world as well as his wrath, and that is his tremendous and glorious salvation as well. Because as Isaiah says, 
The Lord will lay bare His holy arm in the sight of all nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Praise God, it isn't all about His wrath. Praise God, it isn't all about judgment. Praise God, it's just as much about salvation and grace. So that even though God's powerful wrath will be seen all over the world, so at the end there'll be a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb wearing white robes and holding palm branches and crying in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When this glory of God is finally, fully and ultimately demonstrated to the whole of the world as the waters cover the sea, which group are you going to be in? Are you going to be there under the wrath of this God? Or are you going to be there under the salvation of this God? Which group are you going to be in? But for Habakkuk, he is left here facing the grim prospect of God's judgment. That's what's immediately in his future. That's what's coming, and it's coming fast. So what does he do about it in chapter 3? Well, in chapter 3 he composes a song of dedication. He composes a song of dedication. It's really a kind of a lament. a lament, And we know it's a song because he tells us so. Verse 1. It's composed on a shigionoth. And you look at the uh, little notes at the bottom of your page and you'll see it suggests that it's a literally a literal or musical term. The real meaning of it has been lost in antiquity now. But it's to do with some kind of a song, a poem, a song. And we know it's uh, musical because the very last phrase of this letter is for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Habakkuk was a musician. He played some kind of stringed instrument. And so he decides he's going to turn this revelation from God. He's going to turn all this understanding that God has been given him and he's going to turn it into a a, a song, a, a, a kind of a lament, a song of dedication. And notice in verse 2 it's going to be based on a historical foundation in chapter 3 and verse 2. I have heard of your fame. He's looking back. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. I can look back, O God, at what you have done in the past. I'm going to remember my history. And that's what I'm going to base this song on. He looked back to God's awesome ways among his people over the centuries. 
And so he pleads the opening stanzas of his song is, Lord, you have done great and amazing and awesome things. You've been famous and your deeds are awesome. Lord, in spite of all of this, will you now, even at the last minute, renew these amazing things in our day? In your deserved wrath that's about to come upon us, Lord, please remember mercy. We deserve your wrath, but will you send us mercy? And down through the centuries, the church, and the church still today, takes that little phrase and uses it as a great revival prayer. Lord, in your wrath upon our land, remember us in mercy. And so Habakkuk begins to weave into his song the wonderful acts of God's mercy down through the centuries. It's a record of God's unhindered display of his glory. Here he is beginning to spread his glory across the earth as the waters cover the sea in these ways that he's going to mention right from the days of creation. And he goes through from verses 3 to 15, talking about the creation. How at times God sends plagues or pestilence, earthquakes. He talks about the right, the, the, the routes of the Midianites by Gideon in his 300s. Then he talks about the flood and the defeat of the Amorites when the sun and the moon stood still in the sky. He then goes back to the Exodus and he's remembering all these remarkable events in the history of God's people as he weaves them into his song. Notice first of all here then, they are not chronological. They are not chronological. He doesn't, he does, he does begin with the creation, but then he goes on to the plagues and the pestilences in Egypt and the Exodus and then he, then he goes to the Midianites and then he goes back to the flood and uh, then he goes forward to the earth and the, the sun and the moon standing still and so he goes on. It's not chronological. Why isn't it chronological? I think the answer's simple. Because this man's pouring his heart out. He's not sitting down there preparing a lecture. He's just pouring his heart out. He's not interested whether it's logical or whether this follows that. He's just saying to God, Oh God, you've done so great many things in the past. Please come and show us some mercy. In other words, this is a song from his heart more than it's from his head, can I say. And that's why when we get to verse 16, what do we read? He says, my heart's pounded as I think about all these things, as I review them and as I start to put them into my song. My heart starts to thump, he says. My lips start to quiver. He says, I tremble. I go weak at the knees. I'm overawed by all of this. I think that's what he means by decay crept into my bones. It's, it's as if he's, he, he, he's, even his body is beginning to shake apart almost, shall we say. As he thinks about these things, my legs tremble. 
is overawed with a sense of God's greatness. And that's what gives him patience then to say in verse 16, facing all this calamity, but looking up to this great and glorious God who's acted in mercy in the past, it gives him the confidence to say, well, now I'm going to wait patiently. It's in his hands and I'm going to be satisfied to leave it in his hands and leave my little life and all its circumstances in his hands. I'm going to wait patiently and I'm going to wait patiently for him to come and bring his judgment on the nation that's invading us. Yes, we're going to have a real struggle. Yes, days are going to be really hard. It's going to be really tough. But Lord, we're just going to, I'm just going to have to trust you and wait for you to bring it all to an end in your great purposes and plans. In other words, he's going to look beyond the immediate calamity to God's ultimate answer to his judgment working out and all he pleads is that in the meantime God would show them some mercy. Just let's stop there for just a minute and notice here's a great reason for reading your Bible. Especially reading your Old Testament. Why? Because it's reminding us of God's great and awesome deeds. There's, when I grew up, which is a few years ago now, I grew up in a kind of church and situation among wonderful, wonderful Christian people. But their kind of Attitude, and I grew up with this attitude. It took me a long while to get out of it. That the, what the Bible's there for is the Bible's there with lots and lots of little phrases for me to be comforted and helped as I need it. And we used to have, I never had one, but it was quite common for people to have their promise box. And uh, if, you know, you got into difficulties, you'd open up your promise box and you'd take out a little promise and you'd unfold a little piece of paper all rolled up in a little tube, as it were. You'd open it up and you'd you read a promise for your day, you see, and then you'd roll it up and you'd put it back in again. And there was this attitude, that's what the Bible's for. It's to help me today and to get along tomorrow and so on and so forth. Well... Yes, of course the Bible seems to help us live day by day. But dear friends, it's far, far more than that. It's the record of what God's done in this world and is doing and will do. The greatness and the glory of God. It recalls the history of God and his great deeds throughout this world. And as I thought about this in these verses, I thought to myself, When did my heart last pound as I read some of God's great deeds? When did I go weak at the knees when I read about what God has done in this world? 
When did I just lust? It struck with the awesomeness of what God has done. And especially when we think about the fact that this great holy God sent his own dear son into the world. Born like you and me. And to live that life full of righteous grace and love. And take it to a cross. And there bear our sins in his body on the tree. And then rise in power. And ascend to glory at the right hand of the majesty on high. When did all that last strike me as being awesome? Makes my heart race. Do we ever read our Bibles like that? Now as Habakkuk began to realise these things and he puts them in his song... And he's overcome with this great sense of awesomeness of God. All this prepares him at the end for an amazing experience really. Because at the end he comes to a joyful elevation. A joyful elevation that we see in verses 17 to 19. He knows the invaders are coming. And he knows they are ruthless and he knows that they're going to seize their dwellings. He knows that the Babylonians are bent on violence as we saw in chapter 1 and verses 6 to 10. And he tells us now in verses 17 to 19 the result of their invasion. The result of their invasion is that the fig tree does not, uh, the fig tree does not bud. Why not? Because the Babylonians are going to strip them. What figs there are, they're going to take when they come. And if there's figs are in season, they're just going to take them, strip the trees, probably cut them down and use them for wood to burn. Probably to set fire to their own homes, the homes of the people in Jerusalem and Judea. There's going to be no fig, there's going to be no fig trees. No grapes on the vines. Why not? Well, they strip the vines, take away the grapes and just destroy the vines, the vineyards. Hardly anything left. The olive crops will fail. Why? Because they're just going to trample through them. They take the olives and just drive the chariots and drive their horses and march their army through the through the uh, the olive groves and the olive fields. So there'll be no olives. The agricultural industry of the country is going to be completely devastated and destroyed. Consequently, the fields are not going to produce any food. And there ain't going to be any sheep in the pen. Why not? Because the Babylonians are going to take them all. That's what they do. Steal all your animals. Kill them for food while they're... they're, they're, uh, they're proceeding with their invasion 
Well, what's left over? They just cart them away. And not only the same with your sheep, but your cattle as well. They take them all. There'll be no cattle in the stalls. It's all going to be devastation, deprivation, and destruction. And Habakkuk isn't going to escape any of this. Don't think somehow that God is going to put this prophet in an ivory tower and he's, he's not going to be affected. Far from it. I think he was facing the fact that he was very likely very soon to be made homeless. Very soon he'll be going about starving and destitute just like the rest of the population. It's going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. And then comes this amazing little word at the beginning of verse 18. Yet. Yet. In spite of all this. In spite of it all. I will rejoice. I will rejoice. And to make sure we understand it, he repeats it. I will be joyful in these circumstances. Under all this awful experience, I will rejoice. I will be joyful. Why? Because he has the Lord God. He has the Lord God as his saviour. He's got the Lord God, my Saviour. Reminded me a bit of the, what the Apostle Paul says writing to the Corinthians. He says, I have nothing. And yet I possess everything. Why? Because he has the Lord God as his Saviour. If God is for us, who can be against us? And so Habakkuk is so confident, verse 19, that the Sovereign Lord is my strength. Because the Lord God, the Lord God who inhabits the throne of heaven and is in his temple of glory in heaven, because he is the almighty sovereign God, he's going to be my strength. He's going to see me through this. He's going to see me through this. He's going to hold me up. He's my strength. God is going to give to Habakkuk what we might call an out-of-this-world ability to rise above it all. You see that in verse 19. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go up on the heights, even in the midst of all this, God is going to give him the ability in his soul to rise above it all, even as he suffers it, even as it all comes upon him and upon the nation. And he's going to have the strength and the ability to rise above it all to such an extent that he can sing about it. That he can sing about it. 
while all this is going on, if I've got nothing else, and I'm homeless and I'm stripped and I'm starving, and in danger of my life, I'm still going to get my guitar out and I'm still going to sing to the Lord. Why? Because he's my saviour and he's my strength. And in the end, he's everything I need. He's everything I need. Dear friends, if the Lord doesn't repeat his awesome deeds in our day and our time, and if in his wrath upon our nation he doesn't shower upon us his mercy, if he continues in his wrath to allow our nation to degenerate, and if he sends more plagues, and if he sends more pandemics, and if he was to send us an earthquake, or if he was to send us an invasion, if we have to suffer food shortages, and we might, and if he does, you who are Christians, you won't escape it. You won't be exempt. If it happens to the nation, it'll happen to you and it'll happen to me. And if that happens, will we be rejoicing? Will we? Will we be singing? Do you already start moaning and feel desperately deprived if the supermarket runs out of toilet rolls? What if there's no food on the shelves? What if your homes are destroyed? What if your life is under threat every day? Ah, then will we be rejoicing? Will we be singing? with joy to the Lord. Dear friends, the only way to be like that in days of deprivation is to do what Habakkuk learned earlier on at the beginning of chapter 2. And that is to live by faith. The righteous, verse 4 will live by his faith. And if we're going to be able to live by faith and rejoice and sing in a time of deprivation, we've got to be doing it now, not waiting till then. We've got to be learning the lessons now and living by faith now. Knowing the Lord God, my Saviour. Knowing the Holy Spirit, my strength. Do you know the Lord as your Saviour? Is your strength in Him from day to day? And then like Habakkuk, we'll be able to go and stand and watch to see what the Lord will say to us. How He's going to help us how he's going to keep us through it all. For it is those who hope in the Lord and look to him that will renew their strength. They are the ones who will soar on wings like eagles to rise above it all. They are the ones who will be able to run and not grow weary and walk 
and not faint. And now this joyful elevation in the midst of all this destruction. Let's encourage one another. Let's support one another. Let's pray for one another to be people like this. Amen.